idea. This episode deals with subject matters surrounding an ongoing missing persons case. It references sensitive topics such as death, violence, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Vu pour la dernière fois le 29 juillet dans cet hôtel japonais, Tiffen Véron est depuis introuvable. Japanese police and volunteers stepped up their search for a 36-year-old French woman who went missing two weeks ago. In the summer of 2018, a 36-year-old French tourist was on vacation in Japan. She had visited five years before and fell in love with the country. She was so excited for this vacation, she had been planning the trip for months. The first item on her itinerary was Nikko. It's a popular tourist spot nestled in the mountains a couple hours north of Tokyo in Tochigi Prefecture. She got off the train walked through the bustling town square and made her way along the river to where she was staying, the Turtle Inn. On the morning of July 29th, she had breakfast and coffee with some of the other lodgers in the dining room of the hotel. She packed a light bag, grabbed her phone, put on her white city sneakers, and it was raining so she threw on a raincoat. Sometime after 10 a.m., she left the inn to take a walk. And she was never seen again. Her name is Tiffane Veron. Her case was a sensation in Japan and around the world. Her family rushed to Japan from France in their search for Tiffane. And what they found astounded them. Performative searches, hordes of reporters, wacky police theories. She was supposed to be a normal woman, happy, interested by Japan, you know. What happened? People want to know the truth. And what they don't understand is the, the way it's treated, not seriously. The media began to shine a spotlight on Nikko, a supposedly safe tourist destination. It's home to friendly locals, ancient world heritage sites, hot springs. But some people think there's more going on. To be honest with you, I don't really like Nico. I find this city very creepy, aging, uh, very easy to be isolated from everyone. You can't talk about mysterious disappearances in Japan without talking about the Tiffane Veron case. And after meeting Yanagi-san in Hokkaido last episode, our next move seemed obvious. He's the ex-cop who works for one of Japan's largest missing persons organizations. And he's a Nico native. He offered to show us around. So we accepted his invitation and headed up to Nico. We went to see the place for ourselves on the fourth anniversary of Tiffane's disappearance. It's raining, so it's very swollen. It's very beautiful. There's a sign that says, watch out for the bears. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Gone with the Gods, season one of The Evaporated. I'm Jake Adelstein. And I'm Shoko Planbeck. Episode seven, The March Room. The baffling case of Tiffane Varon has been covered extensively but there's one journalist in Japan who's been on it the longest, Caroline Gardine. 
we figured there was no one better to familiarize us with the case before we left for Nico. I would like to say that the opinion expressed here will only concern my journalistic work done in assignment for French media Les Jours and does not imply in any way the voice of the family of Tiffany Veron. Caroline is a friend and a great journalist. She used to work in France, her home country, but she's based in Japan now. When Tiffany's story broke, she immediately felt drawn to this incident. Caroline saw so much of herself in Tiffany, a young French woman like herself who was passionate about Japanese culture. I, I think that, like Tiffany, uh, I was in total admiration uh, of Japan. Like, I thought it was kind of a wonderland and where I could have trust anyone, you know. And in fact, I, I really thought that Tiffany could have been me. Tiffany was reserved in public, but to people close to her, she was playful, intelligent, compassionate. In France, she worked at a school for special needs students. So when school was out, over the summer break, she planned a second visit to Japan, an almost three-week trip. Her first stop, after flying into Tokyo, was Nico, and her itinerary was packed. She is someone who is really organized, and it was really the trip of her dreams. She really loved Japan. She already uh, learned hiragana, katakana, and uh, even some kanji. Tiffane had a slip of paper where she wrote down everywhere she wanted to go, in a mixture of French, Japanese, and English. The day she disappeared, she had at least 11 places she wanted to visit on her list. She had scrawled her budget in the margins, and everything was color-coded in yellow, blue, and purple highlighter. Just by the sheer attention to detail, you could see how excited she was by every part of this adventure she was going on. You can see all this for yourself, actually, on the website that was created by her family to raise awareness about her disappearance. According to the five witnesses at the Turtle Inn, there was nothing strange about Tiffane the day she disappeared. She was friendly, talkative, and just getting ready for the day ahead. She wasn't strange or anything. She talked to people. She asked them, oh, yesterday I couldn't went to the temples because it was too late. So now today what I'm going to do? And yeah, really normal conversation. The morning of the 29th was the last time the hotel owner saw her during breakfast. And no one sticks around at their hotel at a tourist destination like Nico, so it wasn't unusual for her to be out most of the day. But she was supposed to check out on the 30th and never showed up. And that's when the owner got concerned. He called the police. The police looked around and they found nothing. Tefane had left with only the clothes on her back and her phone. All of her belongings, including her passport, were left back in the hotel room. But there was no sign that she had returned to the hotel room since walking out the door that last morning. Three days after her disappearance, the French embassy notified the Varane family. Tiffane was officially a missing person. It's basically a parent's worst nightmare. Your child goes on a trip of their dreams to a country on the other side of the world, and they vanish into thin air. And in this case, it's not just a parent's worst nightmare. Tiffane had three siblings, and they were close. The entire family was distraught. Tiffane's siblings and their mother came to Japan to look for her soon after hearing the news from the embassy. 
But imagine being thrown into a situation where you're trying to make sense of an investigation in a language and culture that is completely foreign to you. And the pieces you're trying to piece together make no sense. When the Verone family got to Nico, they were immediately introduced to the Tochigi police. They are the equivalent of the state police for Tochigi Prefecture, where Nico is located. What the family never expected to hear was that the Tochigi police were only investigating Tiffane's disappearance as an accident, nothing more. And all the investigation work they were doing was to support this hypothesis. And the evidence to suggest that this was an accident was, well, paper thin. Uh, everything was based on this handkerchief, you know, and the, the, apparently the handkerchief uh, was, was there, but everybody was leaving the handkerchief in nature. And the family was like, okay, ben, let's take this handkerchief and investigate. But the police said, oh, no, no, don't touch. So for days, the handkerchief was there. Her handkerchief? No, it was not her handkerchief, but that was the main, it was presented as it, it may be her handkerchief. Oh, so in my two handkerchiefs, there's a handkerchief by the river, so it must, she must have Yes, the that was the main theory. It's accident, and we have this handkerchief. The handkerchief is the proof that she had an accident. By the way, this is Constantine Simon. He's a correspondent for France 24, a French international news organization. He's been following this case pretty much from the start. He'll be our other expert voice in here, along with Caroline. A lot of investigative work is about building a narrative, storytelling through clues. And what you have to look out for is confirmation bias, which is taking any lead you find and interpreting it in a way that supports a story that you've already decided is true. And honestly, that's what the police were doing. They heard that Tafane had epilepsy, so immediately they thought she must have had a seizure and gotten into an accident. The infamous handkerchief Constantine is talking about was found by the river, so police decided she must have dropped it there when she had a seizure, so she probably fell into the river by accident. The police conveniently ignored that she had medicine for her condition and hadn't had a seizure in years. At this point, they were blatantly disregarding facts. And one of the most frustrating examples was this extreme weather theory. There is maybe something I can add was the typhoon. Have you, you know the typhoon? Dick? No, no. One of the main theory of this accidental possibility is that there was a typhoon. But there was no typhoon. <laughs> there was no typhoon. What? So that's again something where the family doesn't understand why they keep repeating typhoon when there is no typhoon that day. It gets even more frustrating for the family. Caroline told us how they had to even hire professionals to debate the weather. Simple facts that the police should have been able to check themselves. They had proof. They had from a meteorological agency data. They actually try to show them that it is actually impossible that if she falls in that river as they thought to, we will not uh, find a body or anything, you know. The river just wasn't deep enough or strong enough to sweep her away like that. Overall, the investigation just wasn't evidence-driven at all. No other explanation was seriously considered, including the one that seems obvious to me when a single woman, traveling alone, just vanishes. Take the hotel owner, for example. He was the last known person to see her alive. He said he saw her leaving around 10 a.m. 
but the fact is her uh, phone record and GPS location show that she is in the hotel since 11.45 and we are absolutely sure about that because there is phone activity in that uh, time. So she didn't really leave at 10 a.m. That discrepancy alone should have set off some alarm bells. That guy changed his mind, you know, uh, so many times during formal or informal discussion with the police and with the family. He changed his mind so many times, but there has never been a proper interrogation on that. Here's another bizarre detail that came to light when they got a hold of Tiffane's phone records. Her phone had stopped working sometime between her morning at the hotel and 6.11 p.m. that day. The phone company called it a change of status without the possibility of disconnecting from the network. That means that her phone wasn't on airplane mode, it wasn't out of charge, it wasn't out of range, and it wasn't switched off. Something happened that physically damaged the phone. It's pretty suspicious. Also, the police insist that the phone stopped functioning in the vicinity of the hotel. Tefane's family grew increasingly frustrated by what they felt was a half-hearted search for Tefane by the authorities. If the police were so adamant that it was an accident, then they were ignoring everything else that could have caused her to vanish. And time was ticking. Back in France, they went to work themselves. Tefane's sister, Sybil Veron, happens to be a journalist. She knows how to harness the power of the media, and she has access to it. So when she found out that French President Emmanuel Macron was having a routine meeting with the then Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, she used her press badge to get into the event. And Sybil actually was able to land a meeting with Macron and Abe to discuss her sister's disappearance. This finally brought some much-needed attention to the case. What was the, in France, how big of a story was it? Was it a big story for a short time? I mean, because Macron was uh, asked on that, on that issue, it, it became quite uh, known. And uh, the family is fighting a lot. I think Tiffany Veron has a real family, which is like writing a book, doing a lot of media, very active. So they're really, uh, you know, fighting for her. That's why also this case is also in the media. Damien and Sybil were the most visible members of the Verone family. Sybil worked with the French media, and Damien was more on the ground in Japan. They even wrote a book about the case together, which came out in June of 2022. With their effort, more people in France wanted to know what happened to Defaine. It put a lot of pressure on the French government to do something about it, which put pressure on the Japanese authorities to do a proper investigation. Or at least look like they were. This is a very uh, difficult to understand. Like, so the family explained in the book that the police officers were really offended because they took this call to Emmanuel Macron as, a, as an act of rebellion, like in Japan, questioning the competences of local authorities is very badly perceived. Members of the family were constantly traveling back and forth between France and Japan, Damien in particular. But I have to say that quite quickly, we also felt that this was like a kind of show, you know? And I will say my first reaction is that the police was making a beautiful demonstration 
perfect for television for my camera but I was not feeling it was really active research and that was also what uh, the brother of Tiffany Veron, Damien Veron, was very feeling also. Damien Veron went to Japan to look for his missing sister. He wasn't interested in fame. This was a living nightmare. But he was grateful for the media attention because it meant that maybe if there was enough awareness, enough attention, he could find Tiffany. So he cooperated with the police, spoke to reporters, played the game, hoping for the best. But back on the first trip to Nico, there was this incident, just around two weeks after Tiffane disappeared. This incident really eroded the trust between the police and the Varan family, especially with Damien. Damien had the most contact with the police, and they invited him on these searches around Nico. The press were also present on these searches. Constantine's cameraman was among them. In television, in a story, you want emotion. And you have a main character was Damien Veron. So the main story was to follow him. He was there. He was like very like eager to, to have this moment, to have this patrol, to have this investigate. So he was very motivated and he wanted to collaborate with the police. So imagine the beginning of the day. He's there, he's happy, he's finally, finally there will be something done. He's there. And the day was passing. And the more the day passed, the more he was feeling disillusioned, you know. And the more he was like obviously understanding that this was bullshit, you know, and he was just sad. So our job was also sad. Our job was to just uh, record the sadness, the frustration of a French guy discovering day, uh, hours by hours that this was only bullshit. This was not a proper investigation. He was telling us. He was telling, I've already been there. It has already been, the same place has been already surveyed by the, by the police. And why they don't go far? He was always asking why they don't go more far if it's a real, they, they were in the middle of the, the city, you know? And he's like, why don't you go to the end of the river? Why don't you go in the forest? Why don't you go in the end of the river? What do you, you know? Strangely, Japanese people are clever. Everybody will clearly see that this is bullshit. Why do they do that? It's, it's just for television, just for showing. But During this time, when the police genuinely had critical work to do, they were basically putting on a show, a Potemkin investigation to placate the French media and the Varon family. For their main act, they invited the press and Damien to meet them at Tiffane's last known location, her room, the March Room at the Turtle Inn, to watch them perform a luminol test. Luminol is a substance that glows a bright blue when it comes into contact with certain other substances. There's a number of things that can set off the reaction. Bleach, some metals, urine, even some vegetables. It also reacts with the iron and hemoglobin in red blood cells. That's the way you've probably heard of it being used, to detect traces of blood at a crime scene. Present for the luminol test were the forensics team, some policemen, Damien Veron and Constantine's cameraman. They had to cram into this little hotel room. A double bed takes up most of the space, so there was hardly any room to stand. The crime scene investigators started spraying the walls with the luminol. Everyone held their breath. And I think everybody was really surprised that a very large projection reacts uh, to the luminol with splashes. 
that seems to start from the bottom of the wall. Everybody has no word. Like uh, Damien explains that he saw the, the, the police officer eyes like just going crazy, like, what the fuck, like, what's going on? Like, we just wanted to show you guys that everything in, is nice in this city and everything is safe, but what's that? Let me remind you, all of this was on camera. The police sprayed luminol and found a huge stain on the wall. Not necessarily blood, but there was a strong possibility. But as far as anyone knows, that was where it stopped. The stains weren't investigated any further than that. I also remember like asking the question like directly to an officer in charge of the of the case and he simply told me like we cannot answer this like you will not have more information on that. To give the police the benefit of the doubt, it's possible that the police are keeping this information secret. The principle is called Himitsu no Bakuro in Japanese law, a secret that only the perpetrator would know. It makes sense why the police might not want to make the information public. But that doesn't explain the main problem. Why didn't the police investigate this as a possible criminal case from the start? This was a clue, literally, lit up right in front of their eyes. But it didn't support the accident theory. And as we've noted before on the show, in general, police in Japan don't want to make anything a criminal case if they don't have to, especially if it seems like a case that would be hard to solve. In the cop's calculation, the opportunity for justice or even just closure doesn't outweigh the reputation of their department. It's all about good numbers and saving face. The details don't matter as much. And so, all these open questions, they were just tossed to the side. Tefane was just another unlucky woman who went missing by accident. But how many people really believe that a woman vanishing like this is just bad luck? There isn't a country on Earth where violence against women isn't a problem. Japan is no exception. It's an unfortunate reality that many women who go missing here are the victims of targeted violent crimes. And there are things happening in Nikko that would make anyone suspicious. That's after the break. We're going to take a little bit of a tangent to talk about another case. Tiffane's case and her family's presence in the media was strikingly reminiscent of other cases where young white women visiting Japan went missing. In particular, the Lucy Blackman case in 2000. If that sounds familiar, it's because we mentioned her case in the episode about the manuals of vanishing. Lucy was a 21-year-old British flight attendant taking a working holiday in Tokyo as a hostess at a cabaret club. A cabaret club is a place where mostly male customers spend a lot of money to talk to beautiful women, the hostesses. Lucy disappeared after work one day and was reported missing. The Japanese police looked into the case, but the initial response was that Lucy was just another woman working in nightlife who disappeared. She supposedly left a letter behind explaining that she ran away, but it clearly wasn't written by a native English speaker. As suspicious as it was, the letter slowed the police down. It was only when the British Embassy and the Blackman family back in England got involved that the case started being investigated seriously, if a little begrudgingly. Lucy's father, Tim Blackman, was extremely frustrated with the Tokyo police for essentially the same reasons that the Varan family were frustrated with the Tochigi police. Things got so bad 
that the Tokyo Metro Police stopped communicating with Tim Blackman entirely. And when Lucy was finally found, eight months after her disappearance, it was too late. She was found buried in a cave in a neighboring prefecture. The man who was convicted of dismembering her corpse, Joji Obara, had preyed on both Japanese and foreign women for years, drugging and raping them. He had at least 50 tapes of himself sexually assaulting his victims. He was even questioned once in 1992 at the hospital where he brought one of his victims after fatally overdosing her with chloroform. And the number of his alleged victims? Anywhere from 150 to 400. Not one of these women's disappearances were treated with the gravity that they deserved. When it comes to possible crimes against women, Japan's police can be outright dismissive and misogynistic. You might remember hearing about situations like this from detective school, like the story of a woman who fell into a snowbank, or all the way back to Saito-san and her interactions with the police. Many of Japan's missing women, including Obara's victims, like Lucy, worked in nightlife or in the sex industry. Once investigators catch wind of that, it's often met with classic victim-blaming. She made the choice to get into that line of work. She should have seen it coming. So here's something we'd like you to think about. What do you think would have happened if Lucy Blackman was a young Japanese woman? Or if Tafane Varan was a Japanese woman? What do you think would have happened if she left the hotel and never checked out? The odds are absolutely nothing. The police might come down to turn in. If she had signed her real name and put down her real number in the hotel ledger, they might have tried to locate her family members. And even if her family was desperate to find her, they would just be a normal, if distraught, family. No authorities on their side to put pressure on the police. So for a run-of-the-mill missing Japanese woman? No need to even put on a show, much less a real investigation. It's as if some investigators don't care about the how or why. They just settle for the easiest conclusion to work with. That could mean assuming the worst has already happened. I mean, the main thing is about the attitude of the Japanese police towards this disappearing. There is not a proper investigation, and we know why. Because in Japan, it's quite normal that somebody disappears. And this is not something that we understand as French people, you know. There is clearly a problem. There is a woman who was not supposed to disappear, and she has disappeared. And anybody wants a proper, and especially the family wants a proper investigation on that. And it was not treated professionally. Thousands of women go missing every year. But the difference between their cases being investigated and their cases slipping through the cracks can come down to two things. How much their home country cares that they're found, and whether or not families have the perseverance and resources to look for them. Unresolved criminal cases are bad publicity and they're bad for statistics. So on top of that, consider how Nikko is a tourist town, one that really relies on the image of tranquility and safety. Police wouldn't want to jeopardize the livelihood of a community that relies on visitors, both domestic and foreign. And when the Tefane Ferran story broke, people started gossiping about the town of Nikko. The media attention, even locally, shone a new and probably unwelcome light on the town. On August 9, 2018, TV Asahi did a short piece on the case. A portion of the program talked about some very suspicious activity in Nico, an incident that Caroline also brought up during our conversations with her. 
Uh, for example, they, there is um, an aspect that have been a lot uh, talked about. It's the presence of um, fake uh, guide uh, next to a temple in Nikko. And uh, this temple is really known for uh, women, for fertility. The place she's talking about is called Takino Jinja, or Takino Shrine. It's a little off the beaten path, but the grounds are gorgeous, so it's a popular tourist spot. The gods living in shrines and temples often have a specialty. For example, there's lots of shrines for a god that helps with academics. So if you go there, you might see some students praying for good results on their exams. The Takiniyo Shrine is a temple for fertility, so it draws a lot of women. There is a lot of women who come to have a baby or uh, in couple to pray for, you know, good health and uh, also sexuality and stuff. So the fake guide, who is an old Japanese man, was uh, waiting for the woman uh, there and uh, asked them, do you want uh, to... A special tour of the temple. special tour of the temple and other, not just the temple, in Nikko. And uh, he had um, a car, and and so they put that sign advertising, don't follow this man, because this guy was actually really kind of a pervert. So he was touching the ladies, and sometimes asked like uh, sexual favors. This guy had been driving around, offering to give women a lift in his car, or a tour of the area. The locals knew about him, and they knew to steer clear. He was just the token town creep. If you were a tourist, though, there's no way you would know that. So police put up flyers to warn people about him. The only problem is that if you haven't seen the flyer, or you're a foreigner and can't read it, you might take the guy up on his offer. As I mentioned uh, before, she was really in love with the, the country, and she was saying because I talked to her best friend and she always told that Japan was the most safe place in the world. So there is a high probability that she can follow someone that she doesn't know, a Japanese person that, for example, ask her, do you want to go somewhere or do you want to visit that place by car or walking is a high probability. This man was already on the Tochigi police radar. On top of being a known predator, he was also found with an illegal gun in his car. So to their credit, when the police saw that the shrine he was always hanging around was on Tefane's itinerary, they looked into him as a potential suspect. But the guy ended up having a solid alibi, so they let him go. From the looks of it, he's not the only creep operating in the area. For example, on August 31, uh, 2018, so just one month after the disappearance of Tiffany Veron, the Sanke uh, newspaper relayed, I remember a very dark discovery, like on the Tobu Kinogawa train line, a worker uh, discovered a human skull in an advanced state of decomposition. And more recently, uh, dismembered, body was found in a suitcase in a golf course in Nikko. And this is only like 18 kilometers from the city center. There are many testimonies of tourists who found themselves in a very, very scary situation in Nikko. 
So to be honest with you, I, I don't really like Nico. I find this city very creepy, very easy to be isolated from everyone. Nico is no stranger to missing persons cases, but they don't usually involve criminal activity. They often end in a different type of tragedy. Hundreds of people have jumped to their death into the long river running through Nico, the same one that runs behind Turtle Inn, the same one that cops insist Tefane probably fell into. Yeah, of course, you know, in the small, peaceful town of Nico, like bodies float of drift in the river, between the trees of the mountain ranges, and fall steeply from the top of very known suicide hotspot like Kegong Falls and uh, Lopozawa Bridge, which is very far from the postcard image we have of it, right? But uh, yeah, usually every month they pick up bodies. It's been suggested that like many others before her, Tiffane came to Nico to commit suicide. But that goes against everything we know about her. She was acting normally the morning she disappeared. People on the trip of their dreams with a meticulous itinerary don't usually leave it all behind. This brings up another point of frustration in the way the police are handling this case. The police's main theory was that Tiffane fell into the river. But the thing is, when people fall into the river by accident, or not, their bodies are almost always recovered. Like Caroline said, sometimes they find bodies as often as every month. But in the case of Tiffane, no remains have been found in four years. And they were really looking. So why are the police treating Tiffane's case like it's the exception? Every year, they trudge through the river on the anniversary of Tiffane's disappearance. The police, the Rotary Club, and volunteers hand out flyers in front of the train station. They post the same missing persons poster all over town. And the media comes to cover it. And then the police want to show, actually, that they do something. So every year, they go to that river with a team and they are searching in front of the eyes of the Japanese media. It's performance, right? It's an yeah. annual performance. It's performance. And, and if it didn't tone up the first time, it's not going to turn up the three times. But yeah. it's a way to show that they're doing something, right? Yes, exactly. So July 29th of this year, the fourth anniversary of Tiffane's disappearance, we headed up to Nico ourselves. I left for Nico early in the evening during a totally unexpected downpour. The train I got on was eerily empty and I was alone and kind of damp from the rain. Our plan was to all go up separately and meet at the hotel. There were four of us. Me, Jake, our producer Tisanka, and our intern Himari. We wanted all hands on deck to get as many interviews as possible. The ride up from Tokyo took a couple of hours and I tried to get some work done. I had a car to myself, which was great. But instead, I mostly just watched the scenery turn from the grayer-than-usual cityscape to the misty hills of Tochigi Prefecture. There was thunder and lightning for almost the entire journey. The lightning made neon spiderwebs in the sky. Sort of spooky. By the time I got to Nico, the rain had stopped. But the roads were still wet and shiny, and there was a little chill in the air. I hailed a taxi to the hotel we were staying at. The Turtle Inn. The same one that Tefane had stayed at. 
Turtle Inn is tucked into a residential street that meanders along the river. The water was brownish-green and opaque. There are one- and two-story houses all down the road, and the hotel itself is a kind of pink with moss growing on the shingles. The place isn't run-down or creepy, but it's a little shabby. The kitchen and living room feel like a shared space in a dormitory. The lights are dim, but it is still sort of cozy. I was the first one at the inn. When Jake pulled up, I was outside petting a dog that had been barking at me for attention. He was a really cute collie mix. And he was delighted that Jake had some cheese for him. So while Jake made a new friend, I told him about my drive over to the inn. When, we were, when I was driving over, there's this um, the big road that leads to the back of Nico has all these lamps, right? That, these like huge, beautiful lamps that line up on the side of the road. And my taxi driver told me that it was called the Street of the Gods. And that's where the gods go on the way to the big temple at the very end. Oh, wow. Honestly, I think Nico has an enchanted kick to it. And I like how there's no light pollution, the air is really fresh, and it's really quiet. Something that's impossible to get in Tokyo. Jake, on the other hand, had a different first impression. It is so dead. I mean, mean, there is not a sign of life. There was like one taxi driver. On our way in, we saw a missing person poster of Tiffane in the inn's window. It had her weight, height, hair color, a number to call if you had any leads. I was sharing a room with Tisanka, so we opted for a traditional Japanese sleeping arrangement, which is two futons laid out on the floor. Jake just wanted a room with a bathroom in it. By some stroke of coincidence or luck, the room with the bathroom ended up being the March Room. Before we came to Nico, Caroline talked to us about the March Room and how things about it were unsettling, even before the suspicious luminal results. How the layout itself was just weird. Tiffin's room was next to two emergency doors. And when I went there, because I slept at the hotel twice, and then I tried to... Uh, opened the doors to see if actually they were uh, closed from the outside and from the outside, and you can access both. It was a little difficult for us to really picture this when she said it, but it made more sense in person. There's two doors in the back, and one is locked, one is open, and anyone can walk in at any time. But obviously this isn't closest to the outside door, so someone would have to walk down the hall, but it doesn't look like it. Like Caroline said, the entrances made it very easy to enter the hotel from the outside. Anyone could just walk in. The march room was so close to those entrances that you could access the room quickly without anyone else seeing you. I have a bad feeling about this place. (laughs) I don't have a bad feeling about it. It seems very hospitable, but there there is definitely, when you look outside and you see the the, the opening, yeah, you could, the, the idea that someone walked into this room and then dragged her out whether something happened, certainly seems possible. We are speculating here, but we don't know. No one recorded any evidence of a struggle in the hotel room, and it's a small, old hotel. There's no security camera footage to inspect, and no one that was interviewed at the hotel mentioned anyone suspicious entering from one of these doors. But when an investigation has this many holes, it's easy to fall into that speculative trap. Without satisfying answers, people come up with their own. I didn't sleep particularly well that night. I cracked the window open for fresh air and tried to fall asleep to the sound of the rain and the river. Before I knew it, my alarm went off at 6 a.m. We had some coffee in the common area, put our media armbands on, 
and headed to the Tobu Nikko station. The train station is in downtown Nikko, surrounded by a town square lined with souvenir shops and restaurants. Inside the station were more shops, a cafe, places to buy snacks and drinks. Some police officers and members from the Rotary Club were outside holding Tiffane's missing person poster, the usual information written in Japanese with an English translation. And there's also an ID photo of her, her neck long, her chin slightly raised. We'd seen the poster before. It's been distributed online as well. But a physical copy feels different, especially when it has today's date on it. Last seen, July 29, 2018. Four years ago, to the day. A gaggle of journalists hovered nearby. Right before coming up to Nikko, we actually found out that the Tochigi police weren't going to be searching the river this year. So our plan was to split up and interview people at the station. Tisanka and I went to talk to the police. We had a list of questions that we sent in advance so they could prepare statements. It's usual protocol for these press events. The police were handing out different flyers. These had a QR code on them. Scan the QR code and you're sent to a multi-language site with information about the case. They told us, and a few other reporters, very proudly, that the QR codes were a new addition to this year's flyers. We asked them the usual questions. Was there any suspicious activity in the area? They told us, no, nothing compelling. I asked about her cell phone. Nothing new about that. They still hadn't found it. They hadn't found any clothes or any belongings. And when we asked them about the luminol results, they told us, we can't tell you what kind of test we ran, but we ran forensic test, and it's not a blood stain. I asked more, but he wouldn't tell me anything else, just not a blood stain. I'll admit I'm skeptical by nature, especially with cops who have already been sent my list of questions in advance. But it especially wasn't persuasive. How did it go four years without telling the family or the journalist on the French side about the forensic results? (laughs) But there is one major shift. The police seem to have moved away from at least one accident theory, that she fell into the river. If you know where someone fell, then you have a better chance of recovering them. You know where they might end up. But to go with that point, he said something odd. None of us saw her fall in, so we don't know if she even fell in the first place. And so now it seems like they're really starting to begin to consider the possibility of looking at it as a crime. It was just strange to me that experts in the Varan family have been essentially arguing with a brick wall about how she couldn't have fallen into the river. And now, the most compelling common-sense argument that the police have for the theory is just, no one saw it. So maybe it didn't happen. I'm not going to lie, that was a bit frustrating. The last thing I asked was, what would you like listeners to know? This is what they had to say. We're investigating diligently. We're working very hard doing searches and looking for her. We are still handing out flyers like this, and we're doing what we are supposed to do. And we're working hard. 
I want people to know that. Everybody is doing their best. Meanwhile, Himari and I went and talked to the people from the Rotary Club and some locals who were nearby. This woman, who had lived in Nikko for 50 years, she said that at first she thought that Tufane had been swept away by one of the rivers, but it doesn't seem very plausible at this point. And she also said that Nikko is a calm, safe town. So the case and the commotion around it was a surprise to everyone. Everyone living there knows it's just a quiet town with a long history and a lot of tourists. This girl was in high school when Tefane first went missing. She says that at the time, it was a common topic of conversation, but no one really talks about it anymore. And she also says here that she'd like it to be resolved and that she'd like to know what happened to her just a little faster. She repeated it. I really hope they find her soon. And she meant it. She said it sincerely. But you also get the feeling that she wanted it over with. It's got to be exhausting. It was shocking and it is terribly sad. Tefane's family deserves an explanation. No one denies that. But who wouldn't want closure on the town mystery hanging over their heads? It's hard to move on when every year reporters show up and tromp through the streets and through the temples in your hometown with cameras and microphones. Or when a ragtag group of journalists doing, for example, research for a podcast, walk around asking questions. Ten minutes into doing interviews with locals, a woman asked Himari to turn off her recorder and to leave them alone. They had had enough. We had one last local to interview, our old friend Yanagi-san, who we met back in Sapporo after graduating from Sakura Sachiko Detective School. He was born and raised in Nikko and worked as a police officer, so he has an idea of what this disappearance has been like for the police and the locals. He picked us up at the station in his car and greeted us in his warm, cheerful way. Yanagi-san was a great tour guide. He took us to one of Nikko's many temples. Everyone who worked there, from the parking lot attendant to the receptionist, lit up when they saw him. He took us to a soba shop to eat lunch, and the owner treated us to free shaved ice and tea. Our last stop was a place that was on Tefane's itinerary the day she vanished. It's called the Kanmangafuchi Abyss, a nature area with a temple inside. It was a misty, rainy day and we had to hop and take the long way around the puddles that were flooding the path. This place is known for its long row of jizo, which is a type of Buddha statue, that lined the path next to the river. These jizo wear bright red hats that the locals knit and place on their heads. And these particular jizo have a superstition behind them. One day, the river flooded and some of the jizo got swept away in the current. After this happened, Legend has it that it's impossible to get a proper headcount on the jizo. If you go back and try to count again, there's always one that has disappeared. There weren't many people out on the path, so we got to take our time counting them ourselves. I'm counting 47 Buddhas. I wonder how many there's supposed to be here. We all ended up getting different numbers. 43. 44. And then at the end, there's two more little ones, so 46. Did you count Dojo over there, too? 
We never did reach a consensus on how many there were, but then again, we never agreed on what exactly counted as a Jizo. Like we said, they had once been washed away or heavily damaged. Along this forest path, I saw a few signs that read, Watch out for bears. That caught our attention. I never really even thought about it until then, but... Inagi-san, is it outrageous to wonder if Tefane was attacked by a bear? Yeah, it's probably too far-fetched. I reckon someone took her somewhere, somewhere remote and covered up. There's definitely a criminal element. It's hard to think she was involved in an accident of some kind. I was surprised by how cut and dry that statement was when he said it. Just him saying, matter-of-factly, yeah, it's definitely a criminal incident. No one biting their tongue, no trace of a performance. We didn't talk much on the way back to the car. The family has put in an overwhelming amount of time, resources, and energy into finding answers about Tiffane, both in Japan and at home in France. But this year, the investigating judge in France has come to a difficult decision, that her office has reached the limit of what they can do. Uh, recently, they were very sad because it seems to have been closed. Uh, you know the case better than me. Uh, I don't know if it's officially been closed. Officially been closed, I think. Uh, check the news, but like uh, two or three weeks ago. Oh. oh, that's news to me. I didn't catch that. This was absolutely devastating for the family. They were used to the Japanese authorities dragging their feet, but they were really hoping that the authorities in France at least would remain involved in the case. But issues with the investigation on the French side were apparent even before this latest decision. A French investigating judge isn't like a judge in a common law judicial system like the United States, whose main role is to preside over a case as a neutral party and apply the law as they see fit. An investigative judge is a cornerstone of the French judicial system, and they do exactly what the title implies. They investigate. The police can help them out, but these judges themselves have the authority to interview witnesses, perform searches, and request specialist help for things like DNA analysis or wiretapping. And they can go to the scene of the crime to look for clues, conduct interviews, and reconstruct the chain of events. That's usually a key part of their investigation. But the investigating judge for the Tiffane Veron case, based in their hometown of Poitiers, never stepped foot in Japan. French police were sent there in 2019, but the judge didn't go at all, even when the prosecution and the family both urged her to. So when the judge announced that she was moving to close the case, I mean, it was a slap in the face. We asked to interview the Veron family in August of this year, a month after the news came out about the investigating judge closing the case. I had hoped to meet the Veron family while I was in France in September. They wrote me an email back. Dear Jake, thank you also for your offer of interview. It is very nice, but we don't speak English. Besides, I use in translation device, so forgive me if my thought can seem abrupt. At the moment, we are working on our move with our lawyers, because thanks to the French procedure and the investigating judge, we have the proof that the Nico police invented the accidental track and that the criminal track is obvious. 
In Japan, it works, but not in France. There is a chance that something got lost in the machine-translated email they sent. What they seem to be suggesting is that they have proof, evidence, that the police were biased in their investigation, and they were intentionally avoiding a criminal investigation. It's a serious allegation, and we have no idea what that proof could be. It also sounds like we will have to wait a little longer to find out. The letter continues a few lines down. We prefer not to expose ourselves to the media at this time. Our lawyer has strongly advised us against speaking out at this time so as to not strain diplomatic relations between France and Japan and to devote our time more to the investigation. They went on to say that they also don't want to portray the loyalty and the trust of the journalists that have been with them since the very beginning. They deserve to break the story themselves when it's ready. And as a journalist, I have to say, I really respect that. We hope that this delay will not discourage you from working on Tiffin's disappearance. We would of course be delighted to meet you when we come to Japan, probably in November, and discuss with you our future actions. See you soon, Tiffin's family. That was the last I've heard from them. We're recording this in late November 2022, but there's been no update on a potential meeting or any breaks in the case, at least on the Japanese side. But while we haven't talked to the family in person, there have been other updates about them in the news. In October of this year, 2022, the family requested the help of investigative judges in the city of Nanterre, which is a city outside Paris. The courts there opened up a specialized cold case unit in March that the Varane family hopes will be able to help. And the family continues to petition officials from both countries to open a criminal case in Japan, even though there's no body or suspect. They're pushing forward, as they've always done, alone. While no one can deny that the French investigation was far from ideal, people were at least shocked. But in Japan, the French noticed this sense of resignation, even apathy, towards missing persons cases. And that was very difficult for the French to wrap their minds around. Somebody disappeared. She was supposed to be a normal woman, happy, interested by Japan, you know. What happened? People want to know the truth. And what they don't understand is the, the way it's treated. Not seriously, you know. It seems that it's not, in the Japanese culture, something uh, really that matters or really important. But for us, disappearance is like uh, you, want, you want to investigate, you want to know what's the truth. Like it's just a normal part of life in this country. Hostesses never come home from work. A parent packs a suitcase and abandons their family. A teenager leaves a vague note and is gone overnight. As we've shown you in previous episodes, if you're escaping money troubles or a dangerous home situation, disappearing is a perfectly valid option. So for the public, and especially the police, it's so normal to see disappearance cases that they often see big publicized investigations as an overreaction. It's probably nothing. There's no way to know how many cases have gone unsolved because of this attitude, or how many cases could have been solved sooner before it was too late. There's one case in particular that comes to mind when I think about this. It's such a peculiar example of this. And it's actually not just one missing persons case. 
It's anywhere from 13 to almost 900 missing people, depending on who you ask. And for the families of these evaporated people, it took more than 20 years of fighting very stiff winds to get answers. That's next week on The Evaporated. If you have any information or wish to support the Veron family in their search, please Google Association United for Tefane or click the link in the show notes. The correct pronunciation for Tefane Veron is close to Tifen Veron. We anglicize the pronunciation of her name and others for clarity. The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music Entertainment. It was reported by Jake Adelstein and myself, Shoko Plambeck. This episode was written by Amy Plambeck and myself. Our producer is Tisanka Siripala. The executive producer is Josh Dean. Story editing by Josh Dean and Amy Plambeck. Fact-checking by Aniko Robbins and Himari Iwamoto. Sound design, mix, and engineering by Taka Yasuzawa with assistant engineering by Yurash Jovanovic and Alex Portfelix. Additional reporting and production assistance by Himari Iwamoto. Voice acting on this episode by Marie Dedue, Jean Koji Yamaguchi, and Kazumi Ogawa. Editorial support by Aliyah Papes, Doug Slaywin, and Destiny Dingle. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scheer. If you enjoyed The Evaporated, Gone with the Gods, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It really does help other people find the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.